I'm Josh, if you haven't met me before. And if you haven't met me before or seen me, you know I don't normally preach with an iPad. So we're trying something new this morning, so please forgive me. Um, Darren's fist-pumping me in the back because he's glad I've entered the 21st century. Um, Now, normally I preach on a specific text of Scripture, which some people see as like expository-style preaching, but this morning I have a topic for us. And my topic this morning, my title of my sermon is Why I Believe the Bible is the Word of God. I'm going to go through a number of points as to what that is, but before I actually begin my message, I want us to have a a time of uh, small group discussion. So um, if we have my PowerPoint on the screen, I have a couple of questions behind me that I'd like us to discuss in little groups. The first question is, why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? And the second question, and why do you read the Bible? Now, a quick funny story. Uh, My mother-in-law was thinking about coming this morning. And uh, she's like, well, I'm not coming now. I'm like, why is that? She's like, well, I haven't been reading my Bible. So she, <laughs> she didn't want to come for that reason. Now, you may not believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's totally fine. Let's have a discussion about it. But if you can just turn to some people, two or three in a small group now, maybe just turn around in your chair or turn to the people next to you. We'll have a little chat for the next couple of minutes. Thank you. So I have another story about my adventures at uh, my local gym. So I always seem to mention this, but this seems to be the place where people talk. So I was in the sauna, and there was a lady that walked in, and she had an angel necklace. And um, being the strange person I am, I said, oh, what's, what's the story with your necklace? I, I actually thought it was um, the little symbol out of Lord of the Rings. Turns out it wasn't. Um, but uh, she said to me, oh, it's, you know... Um, It's my guardian angel, and she went through this whole long story about how she's had it for many years. And I just challenged her and said, well, why are you looking to an angel when you can look to the creator of the angel? And that got her thinking, and we had a discussion about that. But then the topic swiftly moved to, uh, you know, the Bible. She actually asked me, she said, do you believe the Bible? And uh, I said, yeah, I do. And she's like, oh, I just think it's full of exaggeration. I just think it's really exaggerated and the stories didn't happen and this and that. And I actually responded to her, uh, which author? And she said, I beg your pardon? I said, which author of the Bible? And she's like, I I don't know what you mean. I said, well, the Bible's not one book. And I began to give her a lesson on what the Bible actually is. I said, the Bible's a collection of books. There's 66 books in the English Bible with over 40 authors. So I want to know which author exaggerated. And um, she's like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And so I think sometimes in the church we take it for granted that everyone knows what the Bible says and, and everyone knows what, you know, how the Bible came to be and you know, simple facts about the Bible. But the reality is a lot of people don't. Um, one of the most common attacks I hear on the Bible is you can't trust it because it's the King James Version and therefore it's a version of Christianity and unfortunately, no one's explained to them, no, actually, the King James Version is an English translation of the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And so we need to be able to explain these things to people, at least in a basic form, to get them thinking. So we know it's primarily written in three languages. Um, in the New Testament, it's written in Koine Greek, which was the common Greek language of the first century. That's what most people spoke, so that was the language it was written in. Um, There's also a multiplicity of literary literary genres in the Bible. Uh, There's books on narrative, there's sections that are dedicated to poetry, like the Psalms, Uh, there's letters of instruction, there's laws. So this all affects the way that we interpret the Bible. 
Um, for example, if you were reading Psalm 17, where David says, you know, shelter me under the shadow of your wings, you know, King David's not saying that God has physical wings that we should run under when we're in trouble. He was using poetic language to describe the protection of God for Israel. Now, what would happen if we grabbed 40 people off the street in Nambour and we asked them questions regarding uh, God and the afterlife? What sort of answers do you think we would get? Now, I don't actually want you to answer that because I'm sure there'd be some very strange answers. But I mean, if we got 40 people off the street today, we couldn't even agree on science or mask wearing or the coronavirus, let alone on God and eternity and, and big matters like that. And yet we have the Bible that has 40 different authors, actually over 40 authors, um, from different cultures spread out over a time period of 1,500 years. There was kings like King David um, who reigned over Israel and you know, he wrote the majority of Psalms around 1,000 B.C., there was also Gentile kings like Nebuchadnezzar who wrote portions of scripture. There's a letter from Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. The majority of Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar penning it with his own hand. Um, and that's in around 600 BC, a non-Jew. Uh, and, and Nebuchadnezzar describes the sovereignty of God over all of his creatures and that he resists the proud person but lifts up the humble. And he proclaims the God of Israel to be the one with everlasting dominion and the one who rules with justice. And that's in complete agreement with all of the other books of the Bible. That's the remarkable thing, is this, this one um, library of books is in all agreement throughout, throughout the centuries. Luke, who wrote about the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and also the early Christians he wrote about uh, in the book of Acts in the first century, uh, he was a medical doc doctor. There was fishermen like the Apostle Peter who wrote two letters, tax collectors like Matthew, military commanders like Joshua, and there were prophets like Isaiah. All of them are on complete agreement on the essentials. Who is God? What is the nature of man? And how can we have a relationship with God? I just want to give us a few examples to think about. So for example, all of the Bible authors agree that God pre-existed all matter, all physical things, and that he is eternal. He's, been, he's everlasting. Uh, so, for example, obviously we all know Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this assumes that the heavens and the earth had a beginning, that they haven't always eternally existed. Likewise, the prophet Isaiah, writing around 700 BC in Isaiah 45 verse 12, said, I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. And likewise, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, written around 90 AD, by the Apostle John, he wrote, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, again, there's 40 authors in different time periods. Not one of them said that the universe has eternally existed. Not one of them said that um, God was created by another God or any of these other um, errors. They all agree that God is the uncreated creator. And they also all agree on the character of God. So, for example, God's faithfulness. We read in Numbers, one of the books of Moses in 1400 BC. Moses wrote in Numbers chapter 23, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? He has spoken, will he not fulfill it? 
Likewise, Hebrews chapter 6, which some people believe was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century, says that it is impossible for God to lie. And in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, the Apostle John writes, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So again, imagine if one of these 40 authors came out and said that God can tell lies or that God deceives people or that God's a sinner and acts wickedly. It wouldn't be consistent with, with the God that is revealed in Scripture across these 66 books. So there is this unanimous thread that runs through the whole Bible that they're talking about the same God with the same character, the same plan of salvation. And, and yeah, it's, it's remarkable. The more I read the Bible, the more times I read through it, the tighter and tighter it seems to get in my mind. Now, we could spend all morning comparing Bible verses and various verses and showing how unified it is, but there's no need um, for that right now. I think E. Paul Hovey has um, summed it up quite rightly. He said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Now, my second point for why I believe the Bible is the Word of God is because of the reliability of the uh, New Testament manuscripts. Now, how do we know that what we have in English accurately reflects what was originally written thousands of years ago? Uh, a dear friend of mine on Facebook, if you um, follow me on Facebook, you've probably seen me argue with him a number of times. He is a very passionate atheist. Uh, he wrote to me uh, this week. He said, uh, I told him I had a Bible college degree. I said, I have, a, I have a bachelor degree on the Bible. And his response was, wasn't the Bible only changed to English in the 1600s? Hence the King James Version. So your Bible college degree was based on a book uh, that was written, then rewritten by men 1,600 years after it supposedly happened about a guy who a few other guys saw do some stuff, and it's those guys' interpretation of what they saw, um, but only written down later and was word of mouth. Ever played Chinese whispers? Notice how stories change due to different people's perspectives? That was his full comment to me. Um, I changed some interesting words to stuff. Now, this is one of the most common attacks of the Bible that I hear from people that I share the gospel with. How can you trust the Bible when it's been copied thousands of times throughout the centuries? But strangely enough, this is exactly why we should trust that what we have today accurately reflects what was originally written. We have over 5,000 manuscript copies that have survived to the present day. And scholars are now able to take those manuscripts and marry them up with one another and compare them and contrast them um, to see if there's any errors that have been made. According to scholars, there's about a 99.5% agreement between manuscripts, which is absolutely remarkable. And uh, none of the differences between the manuscripts affect any core doctrines. So, for example, um, there's a lot of minor differences, like one manuscript of Luke might call him the Lord Jesus, whereas another manuscript 200 years later might say the Lord Christ. And so there's small variations in words, but they don't affect the meaning of the text. They don't affect who Christ is, they don't affect the nature of God, they don't affect salvation. So the weight of manuscript evidence proves that what we have today in the English translations accurately reflects what was originally written um, over the centuries. Now there's a lot more I could say on this topic, but I'd like to continue moving on to some more reasons why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. So the third reason I believe the Bible is the Word of God is that nearly every book of the Bible proclaims itself to be the Word of God. Now, this might sound like a strange argument, but sometimes people say, why these books? I mean, there were other books written in antiquity. Why are these books the authority and not these other books? I mean, there was 
uh, philosophers, there were poets, there were all sorts of people who lived in these time periods who wrote things down, but we don't look at them as the Word of God. Why is it that we see the book of Isaiah as the Word of God or the book of Genesis as the Word of God? Unlike these other books that have been written throughout history, the authors of the Bible boldly proclaimed that they had written the very words of God. You don't get that from philosophers. They didn't say, thus says the Lord. Some of the most common phrases in the Old Testament books are, the word of the Lord came to me, or thus says the Lord. And large portions of the narrative are often interrupted by a word from God or a miraculous event or an angel appearance. See, God is the main driving force of the story. He is the main character who interacts with humans to bring about his purposes. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul wrote, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And uh, Peter affirmed this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 21. He said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The fourth reason I believe the Bible is the Word of God is that the New Testament authors regarded both the Old and New Testament books as being the Word of God. Um, did you know with the New Testament, this, is a, this would be great for trivia, how many, how many books of the Old Testament are quoted in the New Testament? So there's 39 books in the Old Testament. The answer is 34. So 34 of the 39 Old Testament books are quoted by uh, either Jesus or the apostles in the New Testament. The only books that aren't directly quoted are Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song, and Song of Solomon. Uh, we probably know why Song of Solomon wasn't quoted frequently in public. Jesus also quoted from 24 of the 39 Old Testament books in the Gospel accounts. So both the Old and New Testament were regarded by the apostles as being the Word of God. As an example of this, a really strong example, First uh, Timothy chapter 5, you'll see behind me. I'll, I'll start from verse 17. It's the Apostle Paul writing. He said, Let the elders who rule, be wor- rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the Word and doctrine. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Here Paul quotes two passages from two different books in our Bible and calls them both Scripture. That is, Paul regards that these statements are the Word of God. His first quote, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, is from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It simply means that you should allow your working animal to eat food as well. Don't deprive your animals. Treat them well. So when you get home, make sure you feed your dogs because it's been raining and they're miserable. I have two dogs, and that's at least what they told me. The second quote that Paul quotes is a scripture that says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, this quote is actually found in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, verse 7. It's the words of Jesus recorded by Luke. So Paul sees the words of Jesus as recorded in the gospel of Luke as being scripture or the word of God, equally weighty and beneficial as the writings of Moses found in Deuteronomy. Now, Why should we trust the Apostle Paul? If you've ever spoken to a Muslim, this is one of the areas where they'll attack you the hardest. Um, They'll say that Paul changed Christianity. Paul's the one who taught you that Jesus is God. Paul's the one who brought up this doctrine of hell. Now, it's not true. I can prove all of those things from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even from the Old Testament. But to a Muslim who's read 
you know, www.whychristiansarewrong.org, um, his best argument is that Paul corrupted Christianity. A few years ago, I had a, a friend at Kurong. Uh, I, I cared about her dearly, um, but she began to go through a process of doubting her faith. And the area that she actually doubted her faith in was the area of um, why we should trust Paul. Um, she basically told me she was thinking about giving up Christianity altogether because she wasn't sure why we should put trust on Paul's letters as being an authority. So I explained to her, first of all, that obviously Paul performed, I actually wrote her a letter, to be honest. I wrote a massive letter. I actually found it on my computer uh, last night. It's about 20 pages long. <laughs> so I was a little overzealous back then. I think I quoted half the Bible. But I explained to her the miracles that Paul performed as a defense, saying that, listen, God did mighty works through Paul. You know, he um, cast out demons. He healed the sick. He did great things. He raised um, a man from the dead. Uh, I also reminded her of the supernatural conversion experience that Paul had, that he was a Christian murderer. He was killing Christians, and then God dramatically turned his life around. And uh, then I went into probably what I think is the greatest scriptural defense of Paul, which is actually comes from the Apostle Peter. You see, Peter taught the people that Paul's words were the word of God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter writes, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. It's important to note that Second Peter was likely written after all of Paul's letters were already in circulation, maybe except with Second um, Timothy, that may have come afterwards, but all the rest of them. Paul wrote, I think, 13 letters. By memory, don't hold me to that. You can Google it later. Uh, but yeah, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, we read that Paul instructed the church of Colossae to pass his letter on uh, to the Laodicean church, and likewise, those in Colossae should read the letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans. Uh, so it was a common practice to pass Paul's instructional letters around so that all of the churches could benefit from what was written. Um, as a side note, the Laodicean church, some people believe that may have been the letter to the Ephesians. There's a, people are a bit unsure of whether it's a lost letter or not. It's probably not important. The point is Paul's letters were in circulation as, as a teaching note. And Peter viewed Paul's letters as scripture, even though some people were twisting his words and were disagreeing with certain statements and that sort of thing. Paul wrote scripture, according to the Apostle Peter, which elevates his writings to the same status as the Old Testament books that they held so highly. First um, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, is an example of Paul's own view of his own writings. He said, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul himself said that his letters were the word of God. The fifth reason I believe the Bible is the word of God is because signs and wonders were performed in front of multiple eyewitnesses to prove that God was acting through these people. So for example, the first five books of the Bible are often referred to as the books of Moses, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, it speaks about you know, the covenant that God made with the Jews. It speaks about the origin of, of creation, the first humans that God put on earth, all of these sorts of things. But why should we trust Moses? 
Like, why should I believe that Adam and Eve were real people or that Noah's flood happened or at the Tower of Babel that God confused the languages? Why should we believe these stories that are written in the book of Genesis that were supposedly written by Moses? Well, you see, God confirmed his word through miraculous signs. This Moses is the one who lifted up his rod and God parted the Red Sea so that nearly a million Israelites could escape the Egyptian army and then the waters covered over and killed the entire Egyptian army. This is the same Moses who prayed to God for food um, in the wilderness and God provided supernatural food from heaven, supernatural bread called manna and fed the Israelites in the desert for 40 years. This is the same uh, Moses who spoke to God face to face so that his face shone so brightly the people were terrified and asked him to cover his face with a mantle. It's that Moses who told us these stories and so I believe that Moses was sent by God. Likewise, the prophets also performed signs and prophesied future events that um, later took place. So we're able to trust, for example, the prophet Isaiah because he accurately foretold the coming of the Messiah. Why do we trust the words of Jesus and receive them as the word of God? Well, it's because Jesus healed the sick. He walked on water. He commanded a storm to stop storming. He exercised authority over demons. He fed over 5,000 people with a few small loaves of bread and some small fish. You know, this Jesus gave sight to a blind man. He raised a cripple off the ground. So, yeah, and ultimately this Jesus was crucified, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And so God put his stamp of approval that that Jesus should be listened to. He's the only one who has authority over death, and he proved it. So we should regard the words of Jesus as the very words of God. And the, the Apostle Paul, I mean, we, we went through that a little bit too, and the other apostles... They were specifically chosen by Jesus to communicate uh, the message of truth after Jesus' uh, departure back into heaven. And they too healed the sick, cast out demons, and did mighty signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul had to defend his apostleship to the Corinthian church. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said to them, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders with mighty deeds. And he's speaking to the very people who have seen those mighty signs and wonders done by his hands. And so it was undeniable. Guys, the reason why you can tell that I'm speaking the word of God is because you've seen the mighty signs and wonders that accompany the apostles. God put their stamp of authority on them. And when I also look at the Christ-like character of the apostles and the ministry of the apostles, I'm convinced that they're trustworthy men who feared God and accurately recorded the truth. They don't seem to have any corrupt motives like a lot of religious leaders today. They don't seem to be corrupted by money or power or pride or esteem. These were humble men who literally gave their lives physically so that we could receive the word of God and believe the message and have a relationship with God. The sixth reason I believe the Bible is the word of God is based on a really common attack I hear on the street when I'm sharing the gospel with people. I hear people say all the, all the time that History is written by the victors. Have you heard that before? Has someone said that to you before? The reason why you shouldn't trust the Bible is because history is written by the victors. People seem to think that um, the people who penned the Bible were, were the victors, and the victors always sugarcoat the story and paint themselves in a good light. The problem with this argument is that the people who make it probably have never read the Bible, because if they did, they'd, they'd realize that these are pretty strange-looking victors. For example, the Israelites, they were an oppressed minority group who were Egyptian slaves, uh, and they habitually rejected God's commandments and provoked him to anger. 
and they wrote about it. They told us how bad they were. They told us about their rejection of the God of Israel. As a result of their persistent immorality and idolatry, God committed the Assyrian army and the Babylonians to conquer them. Uh, the Christians were also a persecuted minority group who were oppressed both by the Romans and the Jews. They weren't seeking to rule over the people or build massive mansion-like churches. They were simple people who met from home to home and broke bread and had communion around the fact that they knew the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus, and they wanted everyone to know that message. Now, I know I've read it many times before, but I want to read again uh, what Paul describes life as like as being the Apostle Paul. So he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Uh, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, being an apostle was a death sentence. Being an apostle is, is not what any of the disciples could have imagined their life would un, end up like. They, they were starved of food. They were cold. They were, they were beaten. And history records that probably 11 of the 12 disciples were murdered for their faith. Um, now, we need to also look at how they painted themselves in the Scriptures. Did they paint themselves as being better than they were, what they really were? No, in fact, the Bible paints the whole human race, including its authors, as sinners who had fallen short of the glory of God. Now, just as an example for us, we would have all, even if we're, this is your first time in church, everyone has heard the story of King David, the greatest king over Israel. But they've probably also heard the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, this is a man who is still held in high esteem by the Jews today as being the greatest king of, that Israel has ever had. And yet, the Bible records that David lusted after another man's wife, took her, had adultery, adulterous relationships with her, and for fear of being found out, he goes and then has her husband murdered. This is an adulterer and a murderer that is held up as not only um, uh, a descendant, or pre what's it called before a descendant? Before he was born, in the gene this guy is in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus' title is the son of David, and yet David is a murderer and an adulterer. But thank God that God had mercy towards him and forgave him of his sin. Moses. Moses was considered the greatest prophet in Israel's history. He was the great leader who led the Israelites through the Red Sea and led them out of slavery in Egypt. And yet Moses wasn't allowed to permit, wasn't permitted by God to enter the promised land because Moses rebelled against the Lord. He was disobedient to the Lord at the end of his life. And all of these things are recorded in the scriptures. The scriptures are brutally honest about the reality of the sinfulness of man. They don't sugarcoat the story. Now, what about the Apostle Paul? What does he say of himself? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violently arrogant man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 
This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. It's a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Paul is the chief of sinners, that 2,000 years later, we're still saying Paul was the chief of sinners, that he was formerly a violently arrogant man who was a persecutor of the church, and yet we look to these people as the ones who wrote the word of God honestly, who told us their faults and told us of the mercy of God. The only human in the entire Bible who was painted in a flawless light is Jesus. He's the only human who ever lived who didn't make a mess of his life and rebel against God. Every other saint in the Bible had times of unfaithfulness and immorality. Every king of Israel failed in their duty to rule with justice and righteousness. Jesus is the only one who remained faithful through every trial. He's the sinless one who gave up his life for us. It says, the Bible says that he was given the just, the righteous one for the unrighteous so that we could be made right with God. You see, at the cross, Jesus took your sin, he took my sin, and he became a curse for us. He was treated as if he was a sinner so that we could be treated uh, as if we had done the righteous deeds of Jesus so that we could stand before him clean so that whoever believes in him would receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and also the gift of the Holy Spirit so that God would give us new strength to live for him. The fruit of the Spirit's love and joy and peace, the presence of God produced in us enables us to live a holy life. It's the thing that delivered Paul from being a violently arrogant man who killed Christians to being a man who laid his life down for the brethren. You can have that relationship with God this morning. You can have the Spirit of God living in you because when Jesus died on the cross, your sins were paid for. If only you'll believe. And when he was raised from the dead, God promised he too would raise you from the dead if you would receive the message and receive him as your Lord. Now, unfortunately, I don't have time this morning to go through every reason why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. If we had another two hours, we could look at things like archaeological discoveries that confirm the events in the Bible were real history and not just legends or stories. Or we could spend time looking at how scientific discoveries line up with the creation of the world in Genesis. Or I could have spent the whole morning proving uh, God's Word by going through all of the biblical prophecies and showing you how hundreds of prophecies were made far in advance of the events taking place and only God could accurately predict the future. Um, But, you know, I mean, just speaking on that, the Ethiopian eunuch is a wonderful story in Acts chapter 8. You have Philip the evangelist who is in a desert who comes across an Ethiopian um, who is serving Queen Candace of the Ethiopians And uh, he's reading the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah in his chariot in the first century. And he says to Philip, who does the prophet speak of? Does he speak of himself or some other? And Philip was able from Isaiah 53 to explain to the Ethiopian eunuch who Jesus was. From a book that was written 700 years prior to Jesus, he was able to explain the way of salvation, how Jesus perfectly fulfilled uh, the prophecies concerning him. But we won't spend all morning on that because we'll get stuck on a sidetrack. I want to finish with what I believe to be the strongest argument for why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. And that is quite simply because Jesus believed the Bible was the Word of God. If you want to bypass all other arguments, this is the one argument that I feel the absolute strongest. And again, God raising Jesus from the dead proves to me that what He said goes. What He said is the truth. What He said is going to endure into eternity because He's the Father of eternity. 
Now, does anyone know uh, what book of the Bible Jesus quoted from more frequently than any other? Personally, I thought it was Psalms, but I was wrong. Isaiah, that's a good guess. It actually turns out the most frequently quoted book from Jesus in the New Testament was the book of Deuteronomy. Now, as an example, do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan? Um, And as Satan was tempting Jesus to sin, Jesus said three times, it is written. And he quotes three Old Testament passages to Satan. They're all found in the book of Deuteronomy. So the first rebuttal Jesus did, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And then he said again, it is written, you shall not test the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And his last rebuttal was, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus so treasured and valued the word of God that he used it as his defense against the temptations of Satan and quoted it as the authority. If Jesus held the books of the Bible in that high of esteem, so should we. However, it's not enough that he just quoted these Old Testament verses in times of trial. He also believed that it was our place of final authority. In Matthew chapter 22, there were some religious leaders called Sadducees who challenged Jesus when it came to this, uh, the resurrection of the dead. See, the Sadducees didn't believe that God would or could raise uh, people from the dead after they died. Uh, and Jesus responded to them, not with his own opinion, but he actually responded to them with Scripture. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, Jesus answered the Sadducees, You are wrong. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he quoted to them Exodus 3, verse 6, in defense of the view that all who believe on him will be raised to everlasting life. Jesus said, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And he's referencing Exodus, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus said to these religious leaders of the Jews, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? What an, for maybe just another example, Jesus, uh, after he was put to death, the disciples were very uh, discouraged. They thought that it was basically the end of the story. They thought Jesus was going to live on the earth forever and reign over the earth there and then. And uh, when he was put to death, they were, they were sad. But after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples and he said, here, behold my hands and my feet. And he showed them the nail prints of his hands. And he quoted to them Luke chapter 24, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He said, these are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So Jesus is saying that the whole Old Testament speaks of him. And he refers to the law of Moses, which is the first five books that he so frequently quoted from. He refers to the prophets, prophecies like Isaiah, Ezekiel. uh, And he refers to the Psalms and his fulfillment um, of the prophetic Psalms. So Jesus believed that the Old Testament was accurately the Word of God. Not only did he believe that it was the Word of God and carried God's authority, but He also believed his very own words were divinely inspired. So in Luke chapter 21, verse 33, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What a statement. 
Or what about in John chapter 12, verse 48? Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Jesus said his words were the word of God. And Jesus said that his words will judge every person on the last day. You have, if you have a Bible this morning, you have in your hands the very words of this Jesus. And he said, those words are so binding, they will never pass away. And you'll be held accountable to those words on the day of judgment. The woman I spoke to at the gym with the angel necklace, she also questioned stories like Noah's flood. And, you know, she said, you don't really believe that there was actually an Adam and Eve, do you? And you don't really believe that there was a guy named Noah. So again, why should we believe these stories are authentic? And my, my response to her was because Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, believed these stories to be authentic. So the only thing I care about is what does Jesus say? What does Jesus think about these things? Did Jesus treat the flood of, Noah, um, the flood of Noah as a historical event? Or did Jesus see that as a legend or something to be compared to Hercules and Zeus? So I just want to focus on that one little story towards the end on Noah's Ark. It happened sometime around 2400 BC. And Jesus referenced this event alongside the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as being parallel to his second coming when Jesus would return to earth and judge the world. In Luke chapter 17, verse 26, Jesus said, As it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it also was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be at the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus is comparing past judgment events with a coming judgment when he returns again to establish his kingdom on the earth. He treated them like real historical events. What makes it even harder or more difficult to dismiss Noah is that Noah actually is mentioned in the genealogy of Mary in Luke chapter 3. Now, sometimes we, we gloss over the genealogies because we think, oh my gosh, this is so boring. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And you know, you read a book like the book of Numbers and like the first, I think, eight chapters are nothing but genealogies. And you think, why did God decide to put that in the Bible? Well, the Jews were very good record keepers. They knew who their forefathers were. And in the genealogy of Mary, um, which is written in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, uh, Mary is actually a descendant of Noah and a descendant of Shem, one of, her, one of his three sons who entered the ark with him. Uh, likewise, you'll also see in the genealogies uh, in the book of Chronicles, you'll see that Noah is again mentioned, his sons are mentioned. So these are real historical peoples that have been written down in these long lists of um, so-and-so and begot so-and-so. Now I meet many people who say to me, yeah, Josh, I believe in Jesus. I believe, you know, the same Jesus. I just don't believe the Bible. And the reason they find this belief so attractive it's because they can get away with creating a Jesus out of their own imagination. I mean, one of the most common versions of Jesus I hear is that he's like a spiritual guru. Um, like, you know, 
He's, he's the one that's going to teach you a path of enlightenment. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not the Jesus I've read in Scripture. That's not the Jesus who described himself in his very own words, who the eyewitnesses penned down so that you and I could get to know him. Other people say that Jesus is just like a nice moral teacher like Gandhi who was caring of the poor and trying to teach good moral precepts, but Jesus would never claim to be God. Well, according to Jesus' own words, he declares himself to be God. So God in human flesh, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. And if we say that we believe in Jesus, it's got to go beyond that we believe that he existed. We've got to actually believe what he said what he said about the Old Testament, the fact that it is the Word of God, what he said about his own words, and what he said about the apostles that would follow after him. Jesus asked the question of his followers at the day, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? He said also, like, these sayings of mine that you hear, so many people hear these sayings of mine and don't do them, and they're like a man who built his house on a sand, like, and the winds and the waves came and knocked the house over because it wasn't built on a solid foundation. It's a fake religion. It's a fake Christianity that says you can believe in Jesus but disregard his words or disregard the words that we have in our Holy Bible. So the last question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, so what? I mean, what if the Bible is actually the Word of God? Well, if the Bible is the Word of God, we ought to treasure it. You know, Jesus repeated a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's been said by someone else that the Bible is meant to be bread for daily use and not cake for special occasions. We need the Bible for our spiritual sustenance. You, you possess the ability in this country to get it on your phone or to get it physically. You possess the ability to know the creator of the universe, to know his plan for your life, to know his plan for the world. I know the future. Like everyone's getting freaked out about coronavirus. I don't care. I know Jesus is coming back again. I know that even if I die, even if I get struck by a car, I know he's going to raise me from the dead. I have hope of everlasting life and I know he's forgiven my sins because it is written. Just as Jesus rebuked Satan, it is written. Another man once said, James Merritt by name, the primary purpose of reading the Bible is not to know the Bible, but to know God. So many people are living their lives in complete ignorance of who God is because they failed to receive his word. I read another really cool quote this week. It said, complaining about a silent God with a closed Bible is like complaining about no text messages with your phone turned off. God wants to reveal himself to you. You can know the God of heaven. You can know Jesus, the man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, who healed the sick, who calmed a storm, who fed 5,000. You can know that Jesus personally. When we pray, we're not just praying into thin air and doing a strange religious practice or, you know, doing what so many modern people do where they say, you know, best wishes and they give their regards or they say thinking of you. Well, why not say praying for you? I can petition the God of heaven to actually act mightily just as he acted mightily in times past. And I know he can act mightily because he's proved himself in recorded history through the Israeli people and how faithful he was to them and through his, his New Testament church also and through us today. And he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can know that we are his. We can be called sons and daughters of God today. We can know him as our loving heavenly father and we can know him through his word.